You've all heard about the prodigal. So I'm not going to read the passage from Luke 15. The son who goes to his father and says, hey, give me what's due to me. And then he pushes off and ends up eating um, swill. But he comes to his senses and he goes home and he's received and he returns back and he's lavishly uh, accepted by his father, even if his brother's not so keen. And that's, in a way, the template that we have of what's happened to us as a people, as, a, as, as humankind. In Genesis 1, we have our home in a place that is completely and utterly beautiful in every sense of the word, not just to look at, but it, it's, it, is, it is beautiful. But then we go and muck it up because we are greedy and we want more. And that whole thing of sin entering into the whole equation. And then for the next uh, whole period of history, the Old Testament as we understand it, there's this story about how we grapple with the fact that we have been estranged from God. And then in the fullness of time, there's this moment when God sends his son and redemption comes to us. And this process that humanity is involved in is also encapsulated in your life and my life. We're at home. We're in a place of safety and security and beauty where we have what we need. And then for whatever reason it happens to be, we find ourselves moving off into exile because of our brokenness, because of all kinds of things that happen in us and to us, we end up in exile, like Israel did. But then there's that moment when we come home again, and we understand the kind of inheritance that we do actually have in him. And that's the template of our history. That's the template of our lives, our own story. And so... I want to put that there in the beginning this morning and say that's, that's one thing. Now, let's stop for a second and say this. How many of you have seen a nativity play on John's Gospel? Just don't get it, do you? There's no shepherds. There's no angels. There's no manger. There's no innkeeper. There, I mean, there's none of that stuff. There's no, there's no story in a sense to tell. John is, is after something completely different. He's doing something that is... In, in the way that he does it, completely di different to the other three Gospels. But essentially what he's doing is he's telling the nativity story not in just two chapters like Matthew or in a couple of chapters like Luke. What he's doing is he's taking all 21 chapters and he's saying, do you know what? This is a cosmic story. This isn't a story that only happened in a little village this is a story that happened in terms of the whole of humanity. And so what he's doing is he's taking the story of home, exile, and return home, and he says this is what actually happened in Jesus. And he uses what we've come to know as uh, symbol, story, metaphor. And I want to read to you from... Actually, I'll read it in the, in the NIV. It's better to read it in the NIV. I hope my connection is 
decent here. Um, no, it's not there. So let's just read it here. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh, and the, the older translation like this, it dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then it says, And the Word became flesh. And what John is doing in the prologue to the gospel is he's saying, this is the story, guys. That Jesus is there right at the beginning, but he's also here now. And the message says, um, the word became flesh and pitched his tent amongst us. Made his home with us. He is at home with us now. The most powerful and perhaps the, the central metaphor of the whole of John's gospel is one that you have more than likely heard at a funeral. And moi, I've done it hundreds of times. Well, yes, literally hundreds of times at funerals. Chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. That's the old King James. Dwelling places, the NASV. Many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you can also be there. And then Thomas says to him, how do we know where you're going? We have no idea where you're going. And he says, of course you do. It's one of the most powerful central metaphors in the whole of John's gospel. This coming home, this being at home, this being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. The imagery for those who were listening is perhaps a little bit more strong than it is for us. Because in ancient times like this, the eldest son was given the largest inheritance, often uh, uh, excessively large, because the, it fell to the eldest son to be responsible for all the family. He inherited the responsibility to make sure that the family continued. So the eldest son got the biggest pot. He got the, the major portion of stuff, and then he looked after the rest of the family. The idea was that if there was somebody who, who was um, needing to be looked after, they built another room onto the house. They didn't build a separate house. They just built another room. And under one, um, I suppose one roof would be the right way to say it, under one roof you could have three and maybe even four generations of, of family living together. Now, for us in Western culture, that's kind of a rarity nowadays because the mothers and fathers are over there, the kids are somewhere else, probably on another continent, and often not even together any longer. It's really a foreign concept for us. 
But the sense in, in Old Testament and New Testament times was that there was this closeness, this place of security and safety, that there was an inclusion where you knew that you were known and that you were loved, and that it was a place where you could find nurture. In my father's house, there are so many rooms. In other words, what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that not one of you are going to be left without an inheritance or without a place. And I'm going to go and make sure that that is true and that wherever I am, I'm going to make sure that you come and you're part of it because in Jesus, we are included into the Father's life, into his home. We are made one with who he is. I must say it's terribly disconcerting to have the mirrors facing this way <laughs> because I can see myself three times every time. <laughs> every time I do something, it. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is in this life and in whatever future there is, you have a place. You have a place that is safe, that is secure, where you can be nurtured. You are loved. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. And, you know, we may not have a dozen people here who've spent time in jail or, um, you know, done heinous things. But it's interesting that Jesus reserved the strongest condemnation for those who thought they were okay, who thought they were religious. I mean, so in other words, what I'm trying to say to us respectable people is that we had better be more careful because we need to know that we are in need of that kind of place. Yeah. And David didn't know I was going to reference John 3.16 this morning, but I do want to just land on that for a second, because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You remember, you've heard this a dozen times, Lord Acton, who said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I just want to say, with all respect to Lord Acton, he was um, unaware of the full circumstances of love. Because absolute power does not necessarily corrupt absolutely when it refers to God. Yes, God has power. He is all-powerful. But what if there was a love so mind-bogglingly expansive and all-inclusive um, a power so overwhelming, I mean, a love so overwhelming that it, it, it gave new meaning to what power can be. And that's what we call in the church kenotic love. Kenosis is the sense of self-emptying. And in Philippians 2, where it says Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a servant. He didn't think it was something to be grasped, the sense of who he was as the Son of God. But he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, that self-giving, emptying love in which he gave himself to the world. So absolute power, yes, but when you have a love that sacrifices for others, then there is a sense also of it being balanced by 
the power and the love being balanced. That has always had enormous implications for all sorts of different things. We all of us have power. We have power in our relationships. Power is that sense of um, being able to, to exercise some form of authority over another. So whether you're a parent or whether you're a, a, a um, wherever you are in terms of marriage, leadership, business, wherever you are, we have to think that we, we take the power that we have, but it's always tempered by this kenotic love. In our Father's house, we are defined by the way that we love those around us. And we are so, there's no, there's no easy way to say this, but we are so tainted by the world in which we live that we want more, we think we deserve more. In other words, we become greedy for what we can receive. And we have to be saved from the culture with with, in which we have grown up, that we become those who love in this kind of way. We have power. How do we exercise the power that we have? We don't grasp. We empty. We empty ourselves for the good and the benefit of those who are around us. John 15, where Jesus is... Um, in, in full flow as he's talking to his disciples. Verse 5, he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he goes on to say in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than he laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. Friends. Friends. But this is what love is, he says. Love is cruciform. Love love. Love means dying. It means dying to your own sense of what you want to receive or get out of something. Love means giving yourself for another, for their best, in, in their best interests. The message puts it like this. It says, um, in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're all joined in with me and I with you, the relation Intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. And then um, 
in verse 9 and 10. I loved you the way my Father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done. Kept my Father's commands and made myself at home in his love. Learning to love and be loved. That's what you see in the whole of chapter 14, where Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. He's saying he wants us to be at home in that love. He wants us to experience that love. How do you experience that love? Because Thomas said to him, look, we don't really know what's going on. And Jesus says, well, you know what? I've listened to my Father. I did what my Father asked of me. And what does that look like? Philippians tells us, simply, it means that you don't grasp for yourself. You look to give yourself, to empty yourself, so that the best interests of those around you, whether they're your spouse, your children, your workmates, those people whom you love in your family, and as we heard during the worship, your enemies. And don't make any mistake, this is a battle. It is a struggle. It, it's not in our best self-interest to do half the things that Jesus wants us to do, we think. We think, because I said early on, we are tainted by the way that this society thinks, that you must get as much as you can. What Jesus is saying, if we talk about love as being a focal issue, then we have to be willing to have that same kind of chaotic love that we give ourselves away. It's counterintuitive. But when we do it, when we die to ourselves like that, that's when there's life. That's when the seed falls to the ground. That's when there's fruitfulness. And we haven't got time this morning to go into more detail in chapter 14 and 15 of John. But essentially, that's what Jesus is saying to them. So this is the Christmas story, guys. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with Him. That's chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And He came and He lived. He pitched His tent. He made His home right in the middle of us. Not in something over there, but here in the middle of me. Jesus made his home right in my life. And with us looking at who Jesus is, in a, in a sense, heaven and earth are brought together in the life of Jesus. And here's the rub for you and I this morning. Is that in the same way that Jesus is the focal point between God's love and our, his, his expression of love and our expression of love, that there is this meeting of heaven and earth in Jesus. It's exactly the same now in my life. There is a meeting of God's love and my love. There's a meeting point of heaven and earth as I move around on a daily basis. And so what I said last week and the week before, I'm in a way saying the same thing again this morning. And what God has said to us in, through the worship is that if we do not reflect that love, then what's the point? 
then we haven't really heard the story. We haven't really come to grips with what the meaning of Christmas really is. The Word became flesh and made his home with us and in us. God moved into the neighborhood, essentially, full of grace and truth. And so, when it comes to the, the nativity play, you guys are invited to act out the nativity play between now and Christmas with your neighbors, with your family, with the people who live in the same house as you, that you are the expression of the presence of God. You are the expression of God's... You are home for people. You are the home of God's love and kindness and joy and peace. So there's two things that I want to end off with in saying this. Number one, we have a responsibility as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to embody this, to incarnate this whole story over and over and over again. But the way that we do that is by recognizing that we have to ourselves come and again find ourselves at home. And so I want to invite you and say, where are those broken places? Where are those parts of your own existence where you feel that you are in exile? Come home. Come home. Where, where you judge others, where you overpower them and exercise control without that sense of deep, sacrificial love. I mean, there's a hundred things I could go name now. But where are you needing to come home? Where, where are you eating swill in exile? Because the Father is saying to each of us today, I'm ready, I'm waiting. I just want to run out to you and embrace you. And I will give you even more inheritance than you can even ask or imagine. And at the same time, as we experience that, the challenge is, are we willing to be like that for other people, those people around us, even those we don't like, even those who are our enemies? <laughs>